Welcome to the Back Pain Podcast with Rob and Dave, the only show geared specifically to help educate you about your back pain. We talk to the experts to bust the myths, break down the science, and give you all the top tips for living pain-free. So if you're driving to work, tied in the house, or even laid up at home in pain, we have something for everyone. Welcome back to the Back Pain Podcast, episode 30, Discs Don't Slip. Now today, guys, we're talking to David Poulter, a very well-regarded physical therapist working out of Minnesota in the US. We managed to catch up with Dave despite his very busy schedule to talk slipped discs and the spine. We take a real deep dive into the anatomy here to help explain the mechanism behind what is going on when you get told you've got a slipped disc. This is a really important episode and it's something we talk about online with patients and face-to-face in the clinics on a daily basis. Now there is some really in-depth anatomical imagery used here but it is such an important subject and it is so worth understanding the proper reasoning behind what's going on. So we asked David, am I made of jam? If discs slip out, can they slip back in? Do I really need an MRI? And if I have a slip disc, do I have to have surgery? Now, thank you to all the members of our Facebook community, the Sciatica Back Pain, uh, the Sciatica and Back Pain Support Group. And of course, to all of you who message us on socials as well uh, with your direct messages, look, we love hearing from you guys and it does help to guide us in the content that we're putting out for you. So any questions, anything that you want us to cover, of course, ask. With that in mind, if you like the content we're putting out, if we're helping you out, do give us a like, a share, a follow, and make sure you subscribe to us on iTunes or your favorite podcast outlet. Episode 30, guys, slip discs, do discs slip, enjoy. David, so straight into the first question this afternoon, can discs slip? Uh, Simple answer, no. But more complicated answer, I think it's a historical term that people have become accustomed with. If we go back in history, the disc has actually only been a culprit and identified it as a source of problems or pain since around 1938. So some of this rhetoric that we teach patients about slipping discs has really only been around for the last 70 or 80 years. And it comes from doctors first thinking that when they identified what we now know as disc herniations, they thought it was pieces of cartilage. So I think the rhetoric of slipping a disc comes from a historical perspective that medical practitioners used to think bits of cartilage were slipping in and out between the bones. And if we look at the disc per se, and we look at it in lay terms and keep it simple, there's no such thing as a disc. It really is just a joint that we've described in simplistic terms. And I think that has been taken to the nth degree of simplicity, where now lay people perceive that there's a piece of rubberized material slipping in and out between their bones. And the disc is actually a beautiful structure, and really, it cannot slip. And I think the terms that we, we use in medicine have confused patients to that point. So, so it's not something which is actually slipping in and out of the body. It's not slipping in and out of place, if you like. If you look at the disc, let's look at a little bit of anatomy. You've got two bones, which uh, look more like pieces of wood. So if you take a block of wood, and then between two pieces of wood, you have this beautiful structure 
that is akin to a ligamentous structure. So the outside will be like a capsule or a ligament. And that has got rings. And that's where we get the name annulus from. It's Greek for ring. And so you've got these concentric rings of fibrous tissue that resist tension. And they're connected into the outside of that, those two pieces of woody blocks or, or stumps. And then as you blend towards the middle, it's not like people think. It's not a gelatinous material. It's more like a crab meat material that has the ability to absorb water. So this impression that we give people, I mean, the, one of the things I talk about is your disc is not like a jelly donut. We've, we've taken models mm. and we've interpreted them, trying to explain how things happen in this joint. And we've taken them, again, too simplistically. But what the disc really is, is what we should really call it is the interbody joint. It's a joint between two vertebrae. And it's not the only joint, because if you look at the disc intervertebral joint, there are also two joints either side called the zygapophyseal joint, which translated to layman's terms is sticking out bridging joint. So even in one vertebra connected to another vertebra, we have these complicated uh, joints. And so the disc itself isn't the main source of anything happening. We could have also all sorts of other things happening in the other joints. But the things that do happen in discs is we can get bulging or displacement of pressure. And I think this, this thing of saying it's slipping is really just trying to explain how a, a, a viscoelastic, which means a liquid and a solid at the same time, can displace and produce pain. So, David, it's the, the actual bulging of this material rather than it slipping out from place, which is causing the issue. Yeah, so if you look at the reality of what's happening, a normal disc is like a hydraulic pressure receptor, and that's its function. The outer annulus that we talked about is innervated and has a blood supply, and it acts just like every joint. That outer annulus is sensing pressure and proprioception and sending information to your brain about position in space and amount of pressure. And it's normal for a disc to change its shape. As we bend forward and backwards, the disc deforms. And the inner center that we call the nucleus acts like a liquid if you move slowly and acts more like a solid if you move quickly. So it distributes the, the inner nucleus that everybody talks about being like a jelly is more like a hydrostatic mechanism that dis dissipates pressure. So as you bend forward, pressure will be dissipated to the back of the disc, and that will put pressure on the annulus at the back. As you bend backwards, it would reverse that process. And when people think about nuclear movement, it really is really a pressure flow. And it's normal for disc, the annulus, to bulge in any direction. The problem comes when we have a sprain or a strain of the annulus, like if we sprained our ankle, where when you move and put pressure, it will produce symptoms of pain or any of distress in the patient. So the, so the disc can be responsible for pain. I mean, I know you said that it's fairly recent, kind of, you know, the last 60, 70 years that we know that discs can be a problem. Can they by themselves cause pain or is it only when they kind of, you know, what people might think when they touch something else or irritate another structure? Yeah, so if we look at it, so what, this is, this is if you go back in time. We used to think the disc itself or the interbody joint didn't have an innovation. And if you think of that concept, why would you have 23 joints running up and down your spinal column that you would have absolutely no awareness of their position in space? So the first question you've got to ask yourself is, 
why would that, why would a joint not be connected to the brain? Why would it not be connected to the cerebellum, the area that tells you about position and space? And logically, you can infer that if the, you have a joint, it has to be connected to a nervous system. And studies, we, we're probably going back 60 years where they discovered the outer aspect of the disc does have an innervation. For that very reason, it's got to tell us about tension, it's got to tell us about motion, it's got to tell us about positioning space. Otherwise, you'd have this spinal column literally moving without any information going to the brain about position. So if you have an innovation, you can have nociceptors which will send messages to your brain which can be interpreted as distress or pain. The other thing to look at is, as you go in towards the center of what we'll call the disc or the interbody joint, there are no nerves or innervation or vessels because that area resists compression. And it's a logical inference that you couldn't have something in there that would be uh, submitted to with lots and lots of pressure and compression because it wouldn't be able to live in that environment. But what we do know is the outer edges of the disc that are connected to these bones have cartilaginous end plates. And that area just underneath the cartilage is also innervated. So you have pain sensitive structures at either end of the vertebral bodies and the outer annulus is a source of nociception or can transmit messages that may be interpreted. So how can you injure them then? I mean, you mentioned it like an ankle. Um, can this be like an overuse or an overload or a stretch too fast? You know, what are the typical mechanisms for, if we just talk about disc injury as, a, as opposed to kind of getting onto the bulge or the herniation, we'll do that down the road. Sure. So back to, I have this thing called the rule of twos. And the rule of twos it, it suggests that mechanisms of injury of any joint or any structure in the human body is too quick, too strong, which means too much force, too long or too often, or, or a mixture of those things. So if you look at the joint, how do we injure any joint? So sometimes it's we do something too quick and it, it's beyond our capacity to control. So we all know about spraining an ankle. It's something that happens quite quickly, or some people tear what we call the anterior crucial ligament, or the ACL in the knee, where those things are quite obvious because they're external and we can see them. So there's, there's, you can extrapolate that you can sprain a disc. If you do something too quick or you lift something too heavy, you may sprain the outer annulus and hence, just like a sprained ankle, you get pain and symptoms of overstretch, too quick, too strong. The other thing to think about is that we may get damage to our disc very very slowly over time and that would be this too long too often and there's some research that suggests that our discs have a finite amount of movement in them before they're damaged not sure that's true because they're a living structure and they can adapt so the first sign of symptoms may be protective and stopping us short of doing further damage so symptoms aren't a bad thing there are a sense that the nervous system's warning us if we do too much we may actually do damage so in fact it may just be a warning system that potential damage is going to happen so then what is normal to happen to a disc over time because obviously they change like any other body structures whether that's bones or muscles or ligaments some things happen to a disc which will happen to, i mean we use the term disc the interbody joint some things will happen to every single yes. disc in every single human across the planet or you know the vast 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 majority what is normal what's not yeah. Normal, that's a great question. So if yeah. we look at studies, <laughs> there's, there's a study by a, a guy called Berkey who did uh, 
systematic review. For lay people, that's take a lot of studies, put them together and find out what the consensus from that information would be. And he did two interesting studies. What it shows is we can look at people over time and we can see what happens to people who have no symptoms. And I use this analogy called the boiling frog. And if we look at people who have symptoms versus people who don't when we MRI them, there's very little difference in what their MRIs look like. And I always say an MRI is like a wedding photograph. We, we can't tell who's angry. We can't tell who's drunk. We can't tell who's falling out on the picture. We can only do that by asking the patients. So if you have no symptoms and have an MRI, it could look identical to somebody who presents with symptoms. You can have bulging on your disc. You can have protruding on your disc. You can actually have the disc broken and the inner contents of leaked out, which we call a herniation. You can have bits broken off the disc. That is as common in asymptomatic people, people without symptoms, as it is in people with symptoms. Now, how do we explain that? How do we explain that you or I could have these findings on MRI, which people would say, oh, your disc has slipped or extruded or both, yet, you don't have any symptoms versus the person who has symptoms and we look at their MRI and they have the same findings. One of the models I use, the analogy is called the boiling frog. So if you take the old adage of if you take two frogs and you place one and drop it into boiling water, it will immediately jump out. And that is the sudden change in environment. And that's the people who may have symptoms and have a bulge on MRI. And it's back to the model I used before, that happens too quick or too strong. And we can see that in life. If you take water, ice water, and put it in your mouth, it often irritates your teeth and the sensitive. That's because we measure great differences, sudden changes in our environment. If you go back to the boiling frogs, if you place a frog in normal room temperature water and gently turn up the heat, Slowly but surely, it suggested the frog will sit there until it boils. Now, that is the other model where normal changes over time, I call them NARAC, normal adaptive or normal age-related adaptive changes, meaning it's normal for us to have discs that change their structure as we age. It's like having wrinkles on your skin. They don't necessarily cause you any pain. But if you take your skin and wrinkle it quickly, it will probably hurt. So our body receptors are set up for sudden, quick, drastic changes that warn us of danger. They're not set up for slow, subtle changes over time. So the boiling frog model explains how we can have two people with MRIs looking the same. One happens slowly over time without symptoms. The other happens quickly and sudden. And we can hear that in patients. I suddenly bent and felt a pop. That is the person that will probably present with symptoms and findings on MRI versus the person who says, yeah, all of a sudden, you know, years and years and years of doing this and I slowly develop symptoms. That may be the too long, too often and slowly over time. But your MRI does not determine whether you have symptoms. 
your history does, how we examine you and listen. And this is one of the reasons why it's so hard to tell what the causes of pain are, correct? You know, as you said, we can MRI someone with, you know, low back and leg pain. And some people can have, you know, a disc bulge in one area, but can symptoms in a completely different area. And, you know, we see lots of uh, people questioning, saying, you know, I saw a consultant. He said, oh, I've got a, you know, a disc bulge and it's pressing on the left nerve root, but I've got pain in my right leg. Why is this? So does that, yeah. is that one of the reasons why then? Absolutely. And this is, this is the thing. We, we don't often... Uh, scan people without symptoms so we have no baseline of saying oh this is what you look like before this incident and it is quite common for MRIs to be taken and, and not identify the source of your current symptom but identify artifacts like the boiling frog has slowly but surely been happening over time and so yeah it is confusing and that's the thing about MRIs they have to correlate and there's this thing of they should have a rider in the MRI saying this, this thing called the Yorvik rider, where they identify what common findings are in asymptomatic people and suggest to the referring clinician that whatever symptoms the patient has should correlate with the findings. They're not indicative. And if we go back in time, people used to operate on the MRIs, which was damning. They shouldn't operate on the patient based on the history findings and the clinical outcome. Yeah, I read that paper in, it was a paper about that in the, in the Journal of Radiology talking about the prescription of opioids based on MRI reporting. Uh, yeah. if, if they use the epidemiological data to say, you know, there is a severe degeneration of the lumbar spine, this is common with 70% of people of similar age or 70% of people in, in this profession, whatever it, whatever it was. And the, the opioid prescription was far, far lower. And the interpretation of the results was different because rather than saying okay. to patients, you know, oh, yeah, we've taken an x-ray MRI, you have severe degeneration, or they were phrasing it, taking an x-ray, you have some normal age-related change to your spine, same as 80% of people your age, it could be a cause of pain, try some physiotherapy or try some osteopathy or whatever it might be, or try some chiropractic. And, and from there, it, uh, it changed the, the, the mindset of the patients and then therefore the outcomes as well. Yeah, and the mindset, that's another key. Mindset is the key. If you get an MRI result, and you feel now that you have a structural problem identified on the MRI, that can go two ways. That can be relieving for some people, but in a study of workers' compensation patients in America who had early MRIs, their long-term outcome was worse. So, so having a scan should be done with intent. And, and the main reason to have an MRI or a scan is if you have serious pathology presenting or serious concerns. If you're feeling like the patient has a fracture of the vertebrae, or a degeneration of some vertebrae from osteoporosis causing pain, or if they have a risk of cancer, or if they have signs and symptoms of what people call corda equina, where people are having sexual dysfunction, anal or numbness around the genitalia area, or being incontinent with an episode of pain. And, and these are reasons why you might have an MRI. But just having common, you know, central low back pain or buttock pain really isn't the reason to send somebody for a scan yet in the US the, you know people get scans just because they ask for them or the provider owns the machine and you know it's their practice and they routinely scan everybody yep we won't comment about the financial gains on that but in America the statistics are if you end up having back pain surgery it's nothing to do with your presentation it's to do with how many back pain surgeons live in your area which is quite damning so if you live in a poor area, ill-represented by back, you know, back pain surgeons, 
the surgery rates are very low. Whereas if you live, it sounds common sense, but the more surgeons, the more surgery, which, which doesn't quite fit in, in the sense of there can't be more people just because there's more surgeons who need surgery. It should be equal amongst distributions of population, not the amount of surgeons that live in your area. That's fascinating. So if we know that the, the disc can cause pain, how, I mean, how do we know that the disc can cause pain? Is it from, you know, having it, you know, disc bulge removed and then people get better? Or is that a bit of kind of a, you know, post hoc fallacy that, you know, I've had my disc taken out and all my spine fused and now my pain's gone away. So it's obviously the disc that was the cause of the pain. Yeah, and we've got to be careful with surgery. There's a lot of uh, placebo trials comparing surgery to placebo. And what we're finding is some surgeries, basically the routine, the theatrics, everything that goes with surgery is actually the curative part of the surgery, not necessarily removing a bit. So how do we know that discs hurt? Well, th there are invasive procedures that you can do to test if a disc is the source of people's symptoms, and that's uh, called a discogram, where you can actually inject pressure and fluid into the disc to see if it's a source of pain. I was talking about this on social media. There is a downside to that too, because there's an assumption that somebody getting an injection is just going to be the disc that hurts when there can be all the other joints being stretched. But we can, they, they do uh, try and control for that by injecting discs that look normal and discs that don't look normal. And commonly, you have to have the disc either side not being painful to the same pressure stimulus. So there, are, there is some evidence that we can tell you, but the problem is just because you know the disc is the source of pain doesn't tell you what the solution to the patient's problem might be. And the problem is when you have a discogram in America, you generally end up being sent for a fusion surgery where they, they basically stick scaffolding around the two bodies so that the disc itself, the joint, doesn't move anymore. And I'm not convinced that has been shown to be a successful surgery because Imagine if you had a, a, a painful knee and the only solution was to fix scaffolding around it so you could never move your knee again. It, it seems in the spine we go against what we do in every other joint. Most likely if you have a joint that is wearing out or degenerating or is the source of your pain in the peripheral joints, we generally try and replace them. seems to be in the lumbar spine, we generally try and stick scaffolding and stop movement which doesn't guarantee you're not having pain. No, and they are phasing them out now. I mean, obviously fusions are needed in, in certain cases if you have you know, slippages and big fractures and, and trauma and all yeah. sorts of things, but they are slowly phasing them out. There's a lot more done kind of 20 years ago than there are now. Um, they've got lots of different, yeah. different mechanisms. So can we talk a little bit about the different terminology that it gets used with discs? I mean, People will have heard all sorts of terms from bulge, herniation, uh, you know, slip, which I know we've spoken about already, sequestration or protrusion. You know, all these terms get thrown around. Can we talk a little bit about what the difference is between, you know, it, it, patients get told? Yeah, sure. So let's go back to the disc. So you've got this outer, let's say there's probably seven or eight layers of this fibrous tissue called the annulus that connects right into the bone and acts much, much more like a ligament than people appreciate. And the fibers of the annulus are like actually cross. They alternate at 45 degrees to each other. So they produce just like a, a cruciate ligament form inside your interbody joint. And as can you I just, go can I just clarify from the, the outside in. 
Can yeah. I just when you're talking about the annulus, you're talking about the, you know, if we think, we think about the, the simplistic model of the disc, the, the outermost part yeah. of it. So the, yeah. Yeah. So what people like think of, of is the donut. Yeah. Yeah, if people, yeah, like layers of an onion. And this is a problem when we use analogies and models. People, we, we use the words, uh, if we use the word metaphor, simile, and analogy, I don't think people really understand the difference. Metaphor tells you you are something. Simile says you are like something. And an analogy is trying to say you are like something, but use that as a mechanism. So when we go back to the jam donut, people say, oh, it's like a jam donut which in reality they were trying to use it as an analogy to say this is how things happen in the day, like a jam donut, what is the jam extruded out of the jam. Instead of saying, and it's not like that, that's just a model of how we think things happen. So we go back to the, uh, like an onion ring, we've got concentric rings, but in the middle, we, we've I think we've told, this is where the worst mistruth comes, that there's a liquid in the middle. In fact, as I said, it's more like crab meat that has absorbed a lot of water. And it's a solid. It acts like a solid, but it's also this thing called viscoelastic, not to get too technical, which means under certain conditions, it becomes liquefied and it can move and deform. And it more likely deforms than moves. So if you go back to what people can get, people are often told they have a bulging disc. And that's fine. Bulging is normal. But excessive bulging, as we've talked about on the outer annulus, the ligament, may just cause pain by overstretching. Because the nuclear material, if you sprain a ligament, it becomes less likely to resist tension. And, and so the inner content pressure will overstretch the outer ligament and produce pain. That's the bulge. Then people get told things are protruding. Well, if you take the example, if you blow up and push your tongue, hard into your cheek, that is what a protrusion would look like. You get this outer bulge, and again, it's just a stressing of the ligament. There may be, with aging or sudden trauma, a crack inside the inner annulus, and some of the material, the solid material, under pressure may migrate more towards the outer annulus. That will be a protrusion. There are cases where the outer ligament, the annulus, breaks, and material can then, under pressure, extrude. And that is like a herniation. That's like if you have a hernia anywhere in your body. The outer, inner material will appear on the outside. And the other thing we hear about is sequestration, where a bit of material from inside the disc has actually been spit out and is now floating free outside of the joint. And if you look at that, people often think, yep, we use the jelly donut tonight. Those things that are spit out are actually contain bits of bone from the, uh, the vertebra, they contain cartilage from the end plate, and they contain nuclear and the annular material. So they are more like rupturing something and spitting it out. So that those are quite traumatic events. And believe it or not, if you extrude or herniate, those things can recover over time uh, from resorption of our body, our immune system reacting to those, producing inflammation, and they can actually be resolved over time. It's not a necessity to have surgery just because you have an extrusion or a herniation. So that was kind of the golden question that was coming on to next was, you know, once we have this, can it go, you know, go back in? Can it be reabsorbed? And, and how far can it go before it won't happen? Yeah, and it's this thing of, can it go back in? So, it, it, and in fact, if we go back in history, 
this is where the slipping actually came from. A surgeon called Goldthwaite used to put, we have to do things to uh, relocate the material that's come out. And, and that is a misunderstanding of what happened. When material leaves the contained disc, our immune system attacks it like an invader. And that is where some of the pain may come from, because we have an inflammatory reaction. So you may have this heightened reaction where things become sensitized from inflammation. So your nerve roots or your nervous system may become hypersensitive. You may feel leg pain, but you may not have numbness or tingling. So you have this ridiculous symptom, this radiating pain from inflammation caused by the material escaping from the disc. And what happens when that, ha that occurs is like everything else in life, we start this process of healing and macrophagic activity where our white blood cells start to attack the invader. So these things that come out don't go back in. They're actually resorbed by the body naturally through a healing, a process of uh, healing. If you look at surgery, I worked with a surgeon who used to operate on people while they were awake. I know it sounds awful but he operated on back pain patients by what's called progressive anesthesia. And when he operated on them, it's this thing of people expectations versus reality. He would anesthetize the skin and then cut into the patient and open them up. And surprisingly, very, very, very few patients experienced any pain once the skin was anesthetized. He would go right down and cut off bone and ligament get right through the dura to the disc. And even at the disc point, it would be painless until you actually prodded the inner inside of the disc. And what your surgeons used to do, and, and, and they probably do routinely now, is go inside the disc and pull out material so they can stop pulling out loose bits. They don't sew back up the annulus, they just leave it. They used to just leave it. So now there's a suggestion that you should actually repair the annulus, like you do with a hip capsule if you have hip surgery. We're learning more. But it's a, this is the thing, it's a solid, it's not leaking liquid. This myth of, that's why the jelly donut's not a great, or jam donut's not a great example. We don't have this liquid that's leaking out. We more likely have crab meat that's been pulled off the bone and spat out. That's what an extrusion is. So you don't need to repair the discs. And in an interesting study, people always ask, so when I've had my surgery, can I re-herniate or extrude? And the answer is, yeah, you can, just like anybody else. But what they found in a study was the material after surgery that's spat out again and extruded is actually younger material than is the, it contained in the disc itself. So in fact, it may be scar tissue, an abortive repaired process. You haven't rehabilitated properly. You haven't given enough time after your surgery for the disc to recover its normal structure. And you're spitting out tissue that's trying to regenerate. And they do histological studies and they can show it's younger than the disc it came from. That's really interesting. So that hammers home the importance of rehab and exercise after, a, a, you know, correct rehab and exercise after, after a discectomy or after, or I mean, obviously after any surgery, but specifically after a discectomy to, you know, if you go straight back to doing what you're doing before, then likely then you're going to have a similar injury. Yep, and I have the opposite of the rules of twos, the rules of twos of rehab. Don't go back to something too quick. Don't go back to something too strong. Don't go back to something too long and often. Remember, and, and spinal rehabs is like this gray box mystery. We, you know, we, we do really well with all the other joints. 
And in fact, we should go back and think, you know, these are just joints. We need to return them to function and graded function. We, we seem to, do, you know, put people in casts and, and rest is best for the spine. And then at six weeks, suddenly patients should get on with activity. Well, that's not what we do with other joints. We introduce early unloaded motion, keep people moving and then reload them. And I think we should probably look at doing the same with spinal joints. We have this fear, even therapists and clinicians seem to impose a, a self-imposed fear that somehow if I have surgery on, a, on an interbody joint or a disc, it's different than if I have surgery on my shoulder. Rehab, you know, good rehab should follow the same process of unloading, resting temporarily till, you know, till the body has time to start its healing process, and then return of motion and loading. I call it the function loading sweet spot. We need to return people back to where they were pre-injury. We wouldn't leave a sprained ankle in a cast for six weeks and expect it to come out of a cast and then just go back running, which is what we seem to expect with, with people after surgery of the spine. We stick them in a cast and say, don't move for six weeks, but then after six weeks, we'll get you back to activity. We should really be starting day one like we start everything. So talking a little bit about MRIs, which I know we've touched on before, one question that gets asked a lot and people, you know, in back pain support groups, and we've got a back pain support group related to this, related to this podcast is, shouldn't I just have an MRI to make sure that you're treating the right disc? You know, can you be specific enough with treatment? Uh, you know, is there a chance that, you know, treatment and exercise can make it worse if you, you don't know 100% what's going on? Yeah. So MRI, should I have an MRI? So back to the analogy of the wedding photograph. If we look at the studies that we talked about earlier, if the average person without symptoms has an MRI that looks like the average person with symptoms, this is where the conundrum comes. How, just because you have pain doesn't mean your MRI will reveal the location or the source of your symptoms. What it will reveal is what your bike looks like under scanning or imaging. Now, go back. If you have a, a, a back pain that started last week, what would your MRI have looked like three weeks ago? And we can predict that it's probably going to look the same as it does now because it, it, a, a strain or a strain doesn't necessarily show up on the MRI. And this thing of which joint is it? Well, which joint is it? I mean, just because I, I always use the example of people who have these deformities. So you, you get a lot of patients coming who are have a, what's called a lumbar shift, but they're off center. They look like, I always say, they look like they're walking with a pig under their arm on the way to market. Or people in the neck. In the neck, it's more common to have torticollis, where a child will wake up suddenly, you know, in the mid-teens, and the head's tilted to one side, like they're playing a perpetual violin. I always say to those, "Did you lose your violin?" I'm very facetious. And the mystery of those is, we know that they are sudden onset, and that the joints in the spine are causing them. And, it, and the biggest culprit pointed towards is that you sprained the disc. And in children, that you're actually forming or cracking the discs of the neck if you have torticollis. And the answer to that is, why would one joint stop all my joints moving and thrust me into a deformity? And this is the mystery of pain. If we did an MRI of those people, they would probably show, you know, same as everybody else, that a, a joint may have a bulge. But our bodies are strange. They, they try to protect us. Pain is a mechanism saying there's potential danger. And our bodies have these innate responses to protection. There's no reason why I should be in a shift or a torticollis. Because the answer most of the time is getting people out of those deformities and getting the movement helps them. 
And so some of these things may be evolutionary. It may have been with a sudden onset of pain, it was good to be in a deformity because at least you could run away from the, the mammoth or the tiger that's about to eat you. And some of them have lost their value. And yet we can have patients with small bulges on MRI and massive deformities. And we can have patients who have enormous joint problems on MRI causing their symptoms and they don't have any deformities at all. So I say to patients, it's impossible for us to scan you and tell you that is the cause of your symptom. And again, back to the only reason you should have an MRI is if there's a potential issue that may lead you to have some further intervention that's exploratory like surgery or an injection. There's no reason for the common person with pain to actually have a scan. So the you know the to con, so treatment isn't going to you know make a disc worse if it's not confirmed on MRI you know, you know those type of questions that get asked a lot. So, and it's back to using the word. It's this thing. I, I think we've fear monged. We've caused fear mongering and catastrophizing in our patients. And and some of it's the. I'm, I'm going to blame us as a profession. Our ignorance generates onto our patients. Lots of studies showing that a fearful clinician imposes their belief systems onto their patients about back pain. Meaning, if, if I feel that exercise may be bad for somebody with a disc or an interbody pain, I impose that belief even subliminally onto my patients, my facial expressions, how I act with them, how I say, oh, maybe we shouldn't do that movement. And, and there's this debate of whether people should be flexing, bending forward and lifting heavy weights. And it's back to just because we have this narrative that it's dangerous doesn't make it a fact. It's inherent. We have these courses where we teach people how to lift correctly. And the answer is not one evidence or amount of statistics proves that lifting correctly has ever reduced the incidence of back pain. In fact, there is suggestion it's more likely to be the environment you lift in, not how you lift. And this is the work of a, a, an MD called Norton Adler. Meaning, if you're dissatisfied where you are, and it's generally a working environment, if you don't like where you work, if you don't like your boss, you're more likely to injure your back at work. If you live in a happy, supportive environment, you're less likely to injure your back at work. But the question then comes is, you probably do have just the same amount of pain at work. It's just that other factors come into play that heighten when you get pain. So if you're a happy person with pain versus a not too happy person with pain, and it's back to we still don't know what the common cause of common law back pain. It's still a mystery to us. We could, we've investigated for thousands of research hours until to this day, a patient presents in front of you and you really don't know. You, you really, hand on heart as a clinician, couldn't say 100% surety which joint or what is the cause. We have good evidence when we have severe pathologies and red flag indicators, but when we have normal low back pain, we could name, you know, disc, facet joint, ligament, muscle, and we're going to the other realms of myofascial, trigger point, it's my zoas. You know, there's a thousand reasons why people can give these examples is because we really don't know 100% where and why people get back pain. And that, that talking about that flexion reminds us of when we spoke to Sam Spinelli, who's a, a physical therapist from America. 
talk about myths and he was telling us that there's actually some research stating that the people who do lots of repetitive or lots of deadlifting which often is a bit of a myth that people think it's bad for their back the people who yes. avoid flexion and are very strict by having a neutral spine are actually more likely to have back pain than the people that haven't been told to never bend from their back and yes. it's converse and again, to what people this think. Is, this is, yeah. Yeah, it's us imposing our belief system on people well it's the thing of sitting's bad for you Sitting isn't bad for you. It, again, it's been demonized. What is bad is doing something <laughs> for too long, too often, without actually doing something else. And this whole thing of, oh, if you sit all day. I've never known a person just sit all day. I, I talked on social media about it today. I sit on an airplane quite a lot. I do a lot of traveling. I've got to tell you, within about four hours of sitting, my bottom goes numb and aches. And that's ischemia. My body's saying to me, move. I don't sit still, I fidget about like everybody else. It's this thing of, if you truly sat still, then that may be an issue. But if you look at even, you know, the, the person who sits all day at work, they're, they're moving around, they're fidgeting in their chair, they're getting up and down. And, and I think we impose these things, beliefs on people that, oh, you're sitting still all day. I've yet to find, I used to get told off in class for not sitting still. That, that's really interesting. It brings us on to something which I tweeted about today as well, similar is talking about that flexion and something which gets uh, has been told to patients for years is that flexion whether that's from your neck from looking down at your phone yeah. or from bending down to the floor puts and you know i quote puts more pressure on your disc than than other positions is that inherently a bad thing or does the disc like that pressure and likes that movement and then adapts to it like any other any other parts of the body yeah great question and this all comes if we go back in history a man called Mackinson, and then Wilkes redid his study where they, they measured pressure in discs and then it produced this thing what I call the Nackinson stairway of hell where it showed all the positions that have the highest disc pressure and of course they were all slouching and bending and sitting and the answer is that is normal that is absolutely normal these were normal people in fact these were medical students who volunteered normal 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 and it, the, the old thing of Wolf's Law or Davis Law, where form follows function, meaning if that pressure is normal, that is what our discs adapt to. In fact, just like you said, taking yourself away from normal is more likely to do harm to the structure of your disc than keeping normal. Bending, running, sitting, getting up and down are all normal. And in fact, I just tweeted a study today because somebody put on a thing about, oh, you, if you sit still, your, your joints will rust. These things are so detrimental to patients. You can't have a rusty joint. It's not a piece of metal. In fact, our joints are living. They are dynamic. The interbody joint, the disc, gets its nutrition from movement and loading. So these pressures they talk about are actually beneficial because they squeeze fluid out of the disc but when you unload, when you stand back up, it absorbs nutrition through the end plate. That's how it works. It's, it's not a structure that has a circulation essential for life of the disc and keeping it healthy. Avoidance of those pressures is more likely to cause issues. 
And and so so it does adapt, you know, you know, like any other muscle, you know, if you do a movement, whether that's you know a bicep curl or a squat, your muscles get stronger and that load they 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 like. And if you didn't use a muscle in one particular direction, it would waste and it wouldn't be as good as if you trained it every day. And similar thing happens to a disc. It likes that movement, you know, that's how it gets its nutrition and how it how it adapts and gets stronger because of it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and we know that's true because there's there's a, an oldish study by a lady called Diana Brinkley Parsons. Never forget her name. She she looked at people who had scoliosis who developed scoliosis from a young age, and she took samples from their disc. And and those discs, because they are changing morphology, also change their structure. And it's the same if we look at spina bifida children who never walk or never weight bear. Their intervertebral discs reflect that they sit all the time and have never weight bear. If you go back to neonatal development, we don't actually have a lordosis. We develop a lordosis. We don't have a cervical curve. We develop. We're only born with a thoracic curve. And if you look at babies when they lift their head, that forms the structure of our neck. I love teaching cervical anatomy and development because the bifid spinous processes where they split, split because we look up. They hammer against each other and literally split. Your discs from age nine to 21 in your neck beautifully develop into a completely different structure. Cracks form in the discs because we rotate our head. And in fact, if you look at, this is one of the things people think, the lumbar discs and the cervical discs by the age of 21 are completely different. Cervical discs are developed over that between 9 to 21 to rotate your head so we can look around like a faculty it's called being a faculty biped whereas lumbar discs develop from when we start standing up and start to walk if you look at a child they always have this big protruding belly when they start to walk that's because they don't have a lordosis and they're trying to push their weight forward once you develop your lordosis you lose that protruding belly so you can see in your own children if you have children how they develop their spine and the lumbar spine is, is the, the lordosis forms because the discs and the bones remodel. So think about this: people always say, "Oh, discs and joints don't change." So it would be impossible for that to be true because we grow. You're not telling me a, a three-year-old has the same disc as it has when it's 19. These are the dynamic, developing structures like the rest of our body. Once we stop growing, yeah. They don't change morphology rapidly, but it's like everything else. Forms following, and the proof of this is that the 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 bodies change shape and our discs change shape over time. And and you're not going to find a 90 year old whose disc looks the same as a 21 year old. You know, no matter how how little or how much pain they have, you know, they're going to have changed normally over time. Absolutely, because things. This is the thing. The, the, this thing of Wolf's law was always related to bone after fractures, meaning our, our bones look like what they function like, meaning you impart function and the matrix changes. Connective tissues, which are predominantly what the disc is made of, are not determined, their function isn't determined by what the cells, like your skin is determined by its cellular makeup. But these connective tissues are determined by the material secreted by the cells. And so these things work on what's called a transduction or mechanotransduction, impart a mechanical force to them and they secrete material that will resist or adapt 
for that environment. So when people say about this, this if we go right back to split disk, it's not a dead piece of material. It's a living structure that is adaptable. It doesn't adapt quickly, and that's back to the rule of twos. Do something too quick, do something too strong, and it will it may give up like a fracture of a bone. Do something long and often within its capacity, and it will adapt. Brilliant. And I think that's a really good message to to end on, really, with the you know, too much too soon, you're all of twos. And I think we'll we'll pop a link to that that slide, which I think you've put online um, in, in, in the show notes. So thank you so much for that, David. That was, uh, you know, a fa fascinating tour of the intervertebral body joint, you know, aka the disc. Where can people go to find out a bit more about you? Do you want to uh, mention your Twitter handle, your social media handles? Sure. Uh, I'm only on Twitter. Because <laughs> I'm an old man. I, I actually have a handle. I, I, I do... Uh, what I call tutorials under the guise of old man shouting at clouds. And uh, it's basically, I feel like sometimes I've been around, I posted an article on Twitter uh, two days ago that I wrote 21 years ago about patient empowerment. I sound like this old guy who's been around a long time shouting the same message. And if you read that, if you go on Twitter, 21 years ago, I was talking about how we should allow patients autonomy in their own healthcare decisions. And rather than you know telling them what to do, have this therapeutic alliance with them. So I've been around a long time saying the same message for 21 years. So yep, you can find me and my handle is at retlooping, which I'm sure you can put in the show notes. And it's actually a, a, a play on my own name from a technique I invented. But retlooping is my handle, I'm on Twitter. I don't do much on Facebook, I'm not on the gram or the Instagram or any LinkedIn or anything else. I just stick to Twitter. Twitter's my muse, as I call it. No, it's, and it's a very good Twitter feed for, you know, for clinicians, for patients. You know, there's a lot of facts on there, a lot of evidence. You, know, a lot of, you post a lot of very interesting stuff. And I think you've, you have a very decent following now as well, I think. So it's into the, into the tens of yeah, thousands. Right. So uh, you're, you're yeah. doing well on that, on that front. And just a, a note to plug, in mid-November, I'm actually with a team uh, over in Europe because uh, I live in Europe some of the time. I'm trying to head back to France if I ever get a, a chance to just gone into lockdown. I'll be starting a mentorship program for clinicians, so an online mentorship program. So that's coming in mid-November. Fantastic. Well, let us, know on Twitter. You, let us know when you do that, and then we can we can promote that as well for all the all the clinicians listening. Sure. So we, we'll be we'll be happy to help. So thank you ever so much for joining us, and I hope I know that it's election day over there in the US. So. Uh, you're in a you're in Minnesota, aren't you? So it's going to be an interesting. I am. Um, yep, uh, we're a swing state, so uh, I'll either be elated or depressed in about twenty four hours, like the well, rest of the world. Goes, yeah. <laughs> well, we're not political here, so we. Uh, It'll go. We, uh, It'll go it which way or the other. But thank, <laughs> yeah, thanks for having me, guys. It's been a pleasure, and uh, no unbeknown to the listeners, this is our second attempt at this due to issues in Wi-Fi and lockdown and different countries i'm four thousand miles away from where i last recorded this <laughs> yeah exactly so and, and so this is the second attempt we got most of the way through it last time but i think we cut out two or three times yeah. so this is round two so you're getting the very best fantastic well thank you thank for you. joining us dave dave is also here but his wi-fi has also been a bit bit shocking so he's listening but uh, un unable to unable to speak so he's waving at the camera but that's uh, about as far as a good Bye, so, <laughs> so thank you for joining us guys thank you and take care and listen to uh, enjoy the episode and we will catch you on the next one all the best thanks guys